Most of our information about Christmas comes out of Matthew and Luke. But did you know that the Apostle Paul uh, gives us his version of the Christmas story? Uh, It's in a passage of Scripture that was written about 55 years after the birth of Christ, about 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And and so it's contemporary with all this. Paul knew the people who knew Jesus. Uh, Paul knew Peter and John. Uh, John, uh, of course, cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her old age and up, up to her death. And uh, Paul may very well have had opportunity to visit with Mary about the Christmas story and the life of Christ. So he had direct access to the Christmas story. And in Galatians chapter 4, Paul looks back on the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and he gives us his version of the Christmas story. Now, he's writing to a Gentile audience. He's not writing to Jewish people. He's writing to Gentiles who lived in Galatia. And Galatia is actually, today it would be in modern-day Turkey. And he starts out this Christmas story in Galatians chapter 4, and verse 4, and he says this. But when the set time had fully come, and circle that phrase, set time. We talked about that last week. For centuries and centuries and centuries, the Jewish people had waited for the Messiah. For centuries and centuries, the, the world had waited for a Savior. And in the proper time, the appointed time, the set time, you know, God had the day marked on his calendar. Jesus Christ came. It says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Now, don't rush past that phrase, born of a woman, too quickly. You know, recognize, here's a man who had spent time with people who had spent time with Jesus. And after hearing the story directly from John, directly from Peter, uh, possibly directly from Mary himself, Paul had concluded that God sent his son born of a woman. You know, we've romanticized the Christmas story so much. We tell, us, you know, we tell it in plays and movies and manger scenes. You know, we even do it as a cartoon. We've got the Christmas story in plastic, uh, plaster manicured figurines that look more like us than the people who were really in the story. But for the Apostle Paul, who lived in the first century and knew these people, for him to come to the conclusion that God sent his son into the world through a real woman, a real birth, a real baby, that's something to pay attention to. And then he dips into the significance of the story. He says, born of a woman, born under the law. That means that when Jesus was born as a human baby, he was accountable to God's law. He was accountable to the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. He was accountable to the Levitical law, the 600 and some commandments that you know, every Jew had to follow. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Because he was accountable to the law. It says, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And those under the law, that's you and me. Because scripture makes it clear that, that God has a law and that we've all broken it. You know, we're just not very good law keepers. And the truth is, we don't even keep our own laws very well, let alone God's laws. I mean, how many Januaries have come and gone when you've decided that you'd set up some laws for yourself? You set up some dietary laws, some exercise laws, some financial laws for yourself, and you break them before the end of January. I mean, we are just very good lawbreakers. 
And nobody else imposed those laws on you. You set them yourself and you broke your own law. And some of us have broken parenting laws that we established for ourselves. Some of us have broken marriage laws that we set for ourselves. We've broken honesty and integrity laws that we just set for ourselves. Not only have we broken the law of God, we can't even obey our own laws because we are law breakers. Uh, the Bible is to be the authority for our lives, but there are laws in the Bible that, that we just have broken. And when you break laws, you discover something. You discover that when you break a law, you establish a debt-debtor relationship with the creator of the law. When you break laws, you create a debt-debtor relationship. You know, even if, whether you agree or disagree with the law or not, I mean, most of us probably agree with speed limits. I mean, we recognize that there is a need for speed limits, for safety and order, and in fact, we get irritated with people who break the speed limit and whip around us and do stuff. And yet we break those same laws. You know, we agree with the law, the need for the law, but we break the law. And when you do that, the authorities show up and they say, you know, you've broken our law and now you owe us. You know, there's a debtor relationship there. And we experience this uh, throughout our lives, that when we break a law, now we owe someone something. And maybe you feel like your parents owe you something. Maybe your father owes it to you to have been there for you when you were a child, but he broke the law of fathering, he broke the law of parenting, and now he owes you. A law was broken and a debt is owed. Maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you're the parent that has a child that's estranged from you. And if we were to hear their story, they would say, you know what, you owe me a childhood. You should have been there for me. You owe it to me to tuck me in bed at night. You owe it to me to tell me stories. You owe it to me to be there for my games and programs and events. You owe it to me because a law has been broken. And when that happens, there is immediately a debt-debtor relationship that's established. And we've experienced that in all our human relationships, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as employer-employees. The Bible teaches that the same thing happens between God and us. When we break the law of God, we create a debt-debtor relationship. And in light of that debt-debtor relationship... Paul says of Jesus that he redeemed us from the law. And and he uses the word redeemed because redeemed is an economic term. It's a financial term, an accounting term. It means to pay the penalty. It means to buy someone out. It means to, to trade, to exchange for, to pay back. Jesus came to pay for those who had broken the law, you and me. He paid the debt that we owed to God because of our law-breaking. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message that lit up the first century. That's the gospel message that has been spread throughout the world, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin, a penalty we could not pay back. We owed God a debt that we could not pay. Now, you understand the idea of not being able to pay back because we see that in our relationships. I mean, there are things that we owe people relationally that we cannot pay back. I mean, you can't go back into that first marriage and be a better spouse. 
You know, you, you can't go back and be the mother or father that you should have been for your children. It's impossible to pay that back. You can't go back as a teenager and be the kind of teenager that your parents deserve. I mean, they were good parents, they were trying their best, but you were a rebel, you were a prodigal, and, and now laws have been broken, and you can't pay it back. Similar way, Scripture says that, that when we've broken the law of God, there's no way for us to go back and pay God back. We, we can't go back and undo what we've done, and our best intentions fall short. And so the Bible says that when Jesus came into the world and died on the cross, he redeemed us from the law. The law can no longer condemn us, even though we are lawbreakers. God and Jesus, as judge and jury, have looked at us and said, you know what, you are absolutely guilty and you are absolutely forgiven. You don't owe us anymore. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty, he paid the fine. Now, this is not new news for most of us. Even if you're not particularly churched or haven't studied the Bible a lot, that's not new news. In our culture, people know that. But that's only the beginning of Paul's Christmas story. You know, all that redeemed terminology, it's kind of judicial, it's legal, it's transactional. You know, I owe you, you decide to forgive me, now I don't owe you anymore. I owe God, God forgives me, now I don't owe God anymore. It, it's transactional. It leaves God as judge and me as forgiven, sometimes feeling like I've gotten away with something. But it's, it's distant. It's businesslike. It's transactional. And Paul says, that's not, that's not the whole story. That, that's just the warm-up here. Because when God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, he says it goes far beyond just God looking at you and saying, okay, you're forgiven, you don't have to go to hell now. It's far more than that. And Paul, in his story, trying to convey to us the depth of what happened as a result of Christmas, he, he looks into his culture and he looks for a word picture. He looks for a metaphor, an idea, an image, something that can communicate the depth of what has happened when Jesus redeemed us from under the law. And here's what he says in Galatians 4, 5. He says, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Circle that phrase, adoption to sonship. You know, it's not enough from God's perspective that we just be forgiven. The debt's paid. You know, God says, no. He says, you know, I want more than that. I want it to be more than just a transaction. You know, a judge can look over the bench and say, uh, you're, you're not guilty. I, I mean, you were guilty, but I'm declaring you uh, not guilty. Giving you another chance. You're free to go. Judge can do that. He can forgive your law-breaking and have no relationship with you. But Paul looks at the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He spends time with those who spent time with Christ, and he comes to discover that all of this is about more than just forgiving your law-breaking. God wants this to be something more than just a legal transaction. God wants a relationship with you. And so Paul looks around his culture, and he realizes that the best way to describe this relationship you know, is to say that God wanted to adopt you into his family, adopted to sonship. 
Now, in that culture, when Paul wrote the word adoption, when the Galatians read the word adoption in this letter, they did not think of what you are thinking of right now. You know, when we think of adoption, our minds immediately go to these precious little infants or or maybe these cute little toddlers. I mean, who in the world wouldn't want to adopt a precious infant or a little toddler? I mean, adoption is magnificent. It's wonderful. But my problem is, is I am not a precious little infant. I am not a darling little child. I'm just a big guy. Okay? Now here's what's cool about this. In the first century Roman world, no one adopted babies. No one adopted babies because the harsh reality is, is that babies could die. And nobody adopted toddlers. Because with a toddler, you don't know what you're going to get when they grow up. So in the Jewish world, there wasn't even a term for adoption. Jews didn't adopt at all. They had a totally different way of dealing with parentless children. But in the Roman world, people adopted adults. Rich people, wealthy people, powerful people adopted adults. Because the rich and powerful would look at their own children and think, I'm not leaving everything to him. You know, the rich and powerful would say, you know, I can't, trust, I can't trust my spoiled, rotten kids with my title, my lands, my wealth, my influence. They can't be trusted. So in the Romans' world, they, they didn't adopt a baby. You almost never adopted a child. You adopted adults because you knew what you were getting. Uh, you know, after Julius Caesar was assassinated, you probably heard that it's in all the papers. But after Julius Caesar was assassinated and they read his will, in his will he had adopted Octavian. Octavian was his grandnephew who was 19 years old. And imagine, you know, they, they come to Octavian and they say, hey, we got some good news for you. You know, your great uncle, Julius Caesar, adopted you. You get all his titles, land, wealth, power, and influence. It's all yours. And Octavian went on to become Caesar Augustus who was the emperor during the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Caesar Augustus, he got older, and, and he looked at his daughter, and he decided that he couldn't leave everything to her, so he adopted his grown grandchildren because he wanted them to inherit his titles, his wealth, his power, and his influence. And then he adopted his wife's son from her previous marriage. He adopted Tiberius. Tiberius was 40 years old when he was adopted by Caesar Augustus. He's 40 years old, and he became the next emperor, and he was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Octavian and Tiberius both had been adopted. And Caesar Augustus did something really strange in his will. Uh, he also adopted his wife so that she could be the co-regent with his son. He adopted his wife because he's trying to control the future and and who's in charge and what happens. And, you know, I look at that and I think, you know, that might be kind of fun to do in my will. Just, you know, reading the will, hey, kids, guess what? You got a sister and it's your mom. So, you know, work that out. But, But that's how the Romans viewed adoption. So when Paul wrote this passage and his audience read this word adoption, it meant something very significant to them. It meant that God has looked at us as adults. God has looked at us as adults with all our faults, failures, and sins, knowing 
that in the human world, no one would adopt us. I mean, we're not worth being adopted by anyone of great means. We're not worth being adopted by someone who's an emperor. We're not worth being adopted by some great politician. I mean, we fall short of all that. But when God looks at you, knowing everything you've ever done, knowing everything you will ever do, knowing all the promises that you've broken to to yourself, to other people, to God, God still wants to adopt you. And as the Galatians read that, I mean, you know, they just passed that letter around. I mean, this is staggering. God wants to adopt us. Paul says, I've heard the story of Christ's birth, of his life, his death, his resurrection. I've spent time with Matthew and Peter and John and maybe Mary talking about the birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And now I realize what God was up to. When God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those under the law, it wasn't simply a legal transaction. It was relational. It was about a relationship, and the best way to describe that relationship is you have been adopted into God's family. And it gets even better. He goes on in 4.6. He says, because you are his sons, his daughters, his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And, and th- this part is huge. I mean, you, you've got to hear this part. If you haven't been paying attention, you need to pay attention now because it's unbelievable what's happened through this adoption. Well, what has happened is, is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has taken up residency in our heart and he connects us relationally to God. God's Spirit is inside of you. If you're a believer, if you've accepted this adoption, God's Spirit is inside of you and he calls out, Abba, Father. Now, this little word, Abba, it is interesting. It is an Aramaic word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's not a Greek word. It's not a Latin word. It's an Aramaic word. Uh, in that day, the, f- the familiar language, just the everyday language that people used in Israel, was Aramaic. It's the language that Jesus would have spoken. And Abba is an Aramaic, Aramaic word that literally means daddy, papa. And when Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians, he's trying to explain to them this concept of adoption. And he realizes that in the Greek language, as rich as it is, uh, there's no Greek equivalent for the Aramaic, Abba. I mean, he, he couldn't find an equivalent in the Greek language, and so he had to use the, the, this extraordinary Aramaic word, Abba. And so he uses that, and then he adds on the Greek word father for those people who didn't understand what Abba meant. But here's what's amazing about this term Abba. Jesus used this word in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the story. That the, night before, the night when Jesus is betrayed, before he's tried and hung on the cross, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is praying intently to God, asking God, to, God, don't let this happen. Don't let this crucifixion thing happen. And he is praying, Father, Daddy, Papa, don't let this happen to me. And he uses the word Abba. And and the apostles hear him pray that. We we know they heard it because they wrote it down in their Gospels that that's what he said. They heard their Savior, their Lord, their Messiah address God in this most intimate of terms, Abba. And it was so significant 
that, that 20 some years later the Apostle Paul is writing and he's talking about this great adoption that God offers us and he says the Spirit of God has inhabited you and now you can relate to God not simply as forgiver not simply as judge and not simply as okay don't do that again no we can relate to God not as master but as father daddy papa I mean, if you're a Christian, that's the level of intimacy that you have been adopted into by God. You know, Paul thinks about Christmas. God's son, born of a woman. God's people redeemed out of the law. God's people adopted into the family of God. And Paul concludes, so you are no longer slaves, you are sons. Now, why does he say that we are no longer slaves? Because a slave relationship is all about rules. It's all about, here are the five things you have to do. Here's four things you can never do. Here's two places you must go. Here's three places you can never go. This is what you have to do. This is what's expected of you. If you don't do that, this is the consequence. You know, it's all about, it's all about the rules. Paul says, you're no longer slaves. You're no longer relating to God through the law. You have been redeemed from the law. You're no longer relating to God as a taskmaster, a judge, a, a, a rule keeper. You're no longer slaves. You are God's children. You are God's child. And you've been invited to follow the example of your Savior and address your Heavenly Father as Daddy, Papa, you know, the bottom line is we're no longer to relate to God as the lawgiver, but as Father. We're no longer to look at God through the lens of what we have and haven't done. We're to look at God through the lens of who we are. We are His child. You know, the message of Christmas is this. God sent His Son so you could become God's child. God sent His Son, not just so you could be forgiven, but so you could become God's child. Now, what kind of child? An adult child who's been forgiven and accepted regardless of what you have done. You've been adopted into an intimate level with God. You can call him Abba. You know, the French poet who wrote, Oh, Holy Night, got it right. We, we looked at this first line last week. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, waiting, waiting till he appeared and you've sung this next phrase probably a thousand times in your life maybe today you'll get the full import of what you're singing till he appeared and the soul felt its worth the soul felt its worth you know I don't know what you think you're worth to God I don't know how you view God I don't know how you pray I and mean, you may still pray as a slave you may still pray as a lawbreaker you may still pray to a judge you may still barter with God you know, God, I did this bad thing last weekend, so the next three weekends I'm going to be in church. Or God, I did this bad thing when I was 16, and so now that I'm 26, I'm going to do this good thing to cover for it. Or, you know, today I used a bunch of profanity, so tonight I'm going to pray longer. You know, if you're still bartering with God, you're relating to God as a slave. You're relating to God as a lawgiver, as a judge. You're being transactional with God. And Christmas is about the fact that God has invited you into something more. God is saying, look, we're done with that. 
You don't have to come to me that way anymore. You don't have to look to me through the lens of what you've done and haven't done. No, no, no. You are my child. I am your father. Christmas is about God sending his son so you can become his child. You want want to know what you're worth to God? You are worth Christmas. You're worth Christmas. The set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. That's what you're worth. Now, when you adopt a baby, uh, even when you adopt a young child, uh, they have no say in the adoption process. They don't even know what's happening to them. In fact, many people get adopted, live their whole life, never even know they've been adopted. You know, I don't recommend that, but it happens. You know, uh, some people are adopted, they never even know it. But when God adopts you, you play a part in the adoption process. You have to agree to the adoption. You have to accept it. You have to receive it. It's not automatic. In fact, you can reject the adoption. Octavian and Tiberius did not have to accept the adoption that they received. They could have said, I don't want this. I don't want your lands, title, influence, and money. I don't want any part of it. I want the benefits or the responsibilities that come with that. They could have rejected their adoption, and the same is true with you. Through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God offers you the benefits and the responsibilities of being adopted into God's family. But you have to make the decision to accept it. You have to enter into the adoption. You have to claim the benefits. You have to participate in the adoption process. Now, maybe you've never done that. And and if so, in just a minute, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer of adoption so you can accept God's offer to come into his family. Or maybe you've accepted the offer. Maybe at some point in your life you you responded to God's call on your life and you asked God to be your forgiver, to be your redeemer, to be your savior. But maybe you still treat God in some kind of a transactional way. There there are a lot of Christians who, who look to God as judge. They look to him as taskmaster or maybe even just as your forgiver. You know, you show up before God with your sins and he forgives them, declares you not guilty, and then you just go on your way until you need to be forgiven again. But God doesn't view you that way. Because of Christmas, God doesn't see you as slaves. He sees you as children. He has made you heirs, heirs of the kingdom, heirs of eternal life. You have all the rights privileges, benefits, and responsibilities that come with being a child of God. That's how God sees you. And you know, that is just absolutely amazing. You know, it's amazing in here. It's really amazing when you get it in here. You know, when you move this just from being a theological concept to to it being a heartfelt concept, I mean, it changes your whole life. It changes the way you pray. It changes the way you respond to temptation. It changes the way you view your future, the way you view other people, the way you view yourself. It changes you when you understand how God sees you, what you are worth, because you are worth Christmas. And some of us have said yes to that invitation, to adoption. Some of you haven't said yes yet. 
Some of you said yes a long time ago, maybe as children, maybe as teenagers. Some of us said yes as adults, but we're still trying to get the concept from here to here. Some of you haven't said yes yet. You haven't agreed to your adoption. But the invitation is there. God is inviting you to become his child. And today's your opportunity to respond. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your love for us as demonstrated by the sending of your son, by his work in the manger and on the cross. And God, the resurrection is proof that the penalty has been paid. It has been paid in full. We no longer owe a debt that we cannot pay. But God, you call us to respond, to receive that gift, to participate in the adoption. And so if you're here today and you've never responded to God's claim, God's call on your life, would you just do that right now, just in the quietness of your heart, just say, God, thank you. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you for sending your son. God, I recognize that he has paid a debt that I could not pay. And so I have been forgiven. I have been redeemed. And today, I want to be adopted into your family. Today, I want to establish a relationship with you. I want to recognize you as Abba, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.